Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time. Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. Well, let's jump in. (laughs) Having said that. (laughs) I think a good place to start would be Nikki. When we went and thought of the show, you had said one name, one name that you wanted to go and do the show with. Would you mind telling everyone why Will Allred? Because I think that's a beautiful story. Yeah, let's give the man Will his flowers. So, you know, over the past couple of years, as we as a nation, we as a world have been sort of grappling with these really big issues, right? Issues that have to do with race, sexual orientation, gender, particularly there was a post that Will made in the kindest spirit, just like he said, right? He's looking to inspire and educate people. And in this list that he posted, it was like, here are some of the books right, that are helping me that that I should, you know, that I wanted to share for you all to be reading. And then he was catching hell in the comments because folks wanted more diversity among that group, right? There's, so he's getting these questions. Why no, no Black authors? Why no female authors, right? And rather than become defensive, as is most people's impulse, right? And as I had seen people in similar situations do, Will got curious. There was this humility, which is coming across the screen even now, anyone that's met him or spoken with him, right? That's sort of a hallmark of how he operates. But that humility really moved me. And so I did. I suggested, you know, a couple of books and there was just this interaction where it was clear this is a person who does care about the same things, right? We're all trying to get to the same place and it will require that level of curiosity, that level of taking, you know, these critiques and questions seriously, as opposed to dismissing them because they don't align with one's worldview or they make you feel attacked. I didn't get any of that. And so, yes, when I thought about who we can have this discussion with and have it be constructive, Will was the first and only name that came to my mind. Another reason, of course, is that it was important to me that the people who are having this conversation and talking about how we move forward were not all folks of identities that tend to be on the receiving end of, you know, some of the less productive elements of our sales culture. And so Will is that guy. He cares. He's sincere. Smart as a whip, this kid. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think he's the first person to have uh, had this conversation with. So I was really excited that he agreed to do that. I was more than flattered that you thought of me. I think my initial response was, wait, what? <laughs> so when we jumped on the uh, the pre-call, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that I added an impact in that regard. So it was, it was cool. I mean, I've always kind of taken the mindset when someone disagrees with me or has a difference of opinion, it's not a, I'm right, you're wrong. It's a, what do you know that I don't kind of thing. <laughs> That's so powerful. I love that. <laughs> One of the First things that has really stood out to me, both from our pre-call and then I was sort of, you know, doing my homework and looking through a lot of your content, Nikki. So we'll start here. Is there's a lot of conversations in training, 
and it doesn't have to just be sales training. We could even call it like corporate training around building culture on a foundation, as you say, of do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't go here. Don't bring that up. Uh, do say these things. Do, you know, et cetera. And you have always beautifully articulated a different approach. And I really wanted to start here because I think this is like such an excellent framing device for thinking about building culture. So instead of do's and don'ts, what do you prefer, Nikki? And give a little color there. I'd love to hear more. Yeah. When we think about do's and don'ts, and I have hashtag all the children, right? I have all of my kids, or two of my kids that I have at home are teenagers. And if any, anyone who's had to try and get a child to do something knows that do it because I said so, it don't really work. It's not the most effective, right, way to get someone to do it. And even if they do it, some part of them resents having to do it. We have not given in leaning on that, we have not given folks the opportunity to internalize the reasons why they're being asked to do that. Also, though, right, as a parent, I know that there's some stuff they just have to know. I am responsible for them knowing, right? You don't touch the hot stove, right? You don't get in cars with strangers. So the do's and don'ts are important. But what the do's and don'ts in the context of workplace culture, the do's and don'ts are going to teach us how to not get sued or shamed or fired, right? Then that's that don't do this or don't do that. What really actually starts to spark the behavior change is wills and won'ts, right? So I will be more intentional about my behavior so that I won't have a negative impact on someone else's experience. And when we do that, we have taken the authority and we've put it in the hands of the people who we want to be doing the action anyway, what we've also done is we haven't asked them necessarily to change their ideology. I think that a lot of folks are reluctant to come to conversations about these topics because they're afraid that someone's going to try and take that from them or their ideologies are going to be skewered when really the point is the behavior change. You can believe as you want, but just will I be more intentional about the way that I behave so that it won't have a, a negative impact, right? So it requires a lot of trust. It fosters a lot of empathy when we do shift that, right? So again, both are important. As an example of what, what do the do's and don'ts look like, that's usually the training, right, that you mentioned at the top, Morgan, right? So all of the unconscious bias training, training on microaggressions, again, right? That's the hot stove you don't touch. That's the strangest car that you don't get in that you need to know. But in order to have, again, context around that and to feel intrinsically motivated to actually make the change, um, it has to come from a, a stronger place. It's interesting. I, I think about this in a couple different ways, right? Because it's like, as you know, cis white male showing up here having this conversation today, right? I think a lot of people who look like me might be afraid to have a conversation like this. They might be afraid to engage for you know, fear of getting canceled or something bullshit but like <laughs> i think it you have to be able to show up and have that conversation you have to be expressing your ideas otherwise we're not going to get better so you talk about like wills versus wants it's like the perfect way to think about it because if you just tell people they can't then they operate as though there's this like red tape that they can't operate in and that like 
restricts them from ever wanting to engage in the conversation at all. It makes total sense. It kind of goes into what we were talking about at the top, right? With what happens when someone like plagiarizes you with respect to the fear part, right? Yes. I think that that fear of misstep is real. I experience it a lot as a cis woman, a cis straight woman. I encounter this a lot when I'm trying to build connections and have conversations with folks in the LGBTQIA plus community, that fear, it totally exists. But then I think about if I do have this conversation, even the dumb shit I say, right? Even the stupid stuff I say is gonna inform someone. And so do I want that more than I want my own comfort? The answer is always yes. And it doesn't have to be always yes for everyone. But when I think of things in that frame, it makes it a little bit easier for me to overcome that fear. And of course, I have a personal interest in this. I have daughter. She's 14. And she came out as she's 16. She came out as lesbian when she was 14. And I did and said, hashtag all the clumsy things. I had no idea that I was saying all the clumsy things, but I didn't learn anything until I just got over that hump. And said, again, is my comfort more important than what I can learn from this person or what they can learn from me? It's so interesting because in a previous life, I, well, life, I don't know, a number of years ago, I had run, not like, I don't know, I got reincarnated, but that I ran a Techstar startup week and we did the first bilingual programming. So like if you spoke Spanish, because we had a huge Spanish speaking population who were business owners, who were entrepreneurs, they could come and receive, we either hosted sessions in Spanish or they could get live interpretation. And it was a big undertaking. And I think back of all of the things that I did wrong during that planning, during that community outreach, during like, and But I think what we're all articulating is like, oh, it's the best thing in these circumstances is to have egg on your face because it means you're showing up. And if you're willing to learn, it means that you don't have to constantly have egg on your face. It's the process. Like you're basically falling upward. Like the way way up is the way down. Like that's, you got to go through this stuff. So a hashtag clumsy things very, yeah, I think about that all the time. I was like, oh my, I've said some strange stuff. <laughs> I'll give a quick example of a clumsy thing. We were at Disney Springs. I live in Florida. And look, baby, this has a rainbow on it. Don't you want this? I can get this. Every single thing that had a rainbow on it, I was doing the thing, right? It's sort of like when people come to me and they're like saying a rap song. They're like, I know you know this song. And I'm like, if you don't. So anyway, <laughs> my daughter let me know. I was microaggressing against her, not even knowing that. But she was gracious enough to be like, dial it back. I will let you know if I'm looking for something. And it's not your responsibility, right, to do that. Just be here, play a role, support me, and be here in a way that I know that when I am ready to come to you as a resource or to come to you for help, that I can do that. And so, yeah, that was a huge learning experience for me because I did ask, thought I was doing it. I was like, I'm killing it. I'm nailing it. Look at I got all the rainbows. Yeah, no. Nikki, and I think one of the like really powerful things that leaders can take from that, right, is that moment of how you respond when they say, hey, wait a second. That's the signal that says to every other person within an organization, as well as that individual, like, hey, this is a person who actually wants to learn, actually wants to engage in this conversation. It's not a me versus them thing. It's an us thing. Because 
I, I don't know. I think about this and it's like, nobody wants to go out there and hurt people's feelings. <laughs> right? Unless you're a psychopath. <laughs> like out there being like, I can't wait to just like tick off a giant percentage. <laughs> nobody wakes up. No. Uh-uh. But it's hard, right? Because I think we have this like fear that we're going to get attacked in response. Mm-hmm. And if you just calm your own response to it, it, it all kind of works out a little bit Can- better. Can we dive on that? Because I, I think we're touching on something which is interesting on this like fear response. And Nick and I, and I think Nikki, we went rounds on this previously of like creating psychological safety within the team. And this is a big word I learned in a leadership program once upon a time. And I was like, okay, I, I understand it kind of, you know, you get trained on psychological safety. But I suppose at like a very basic level, how can leaders both model and cultivate psychological safety in their team. And I'll just punt to whoever wants to kick that one off. It's me. It's me. (laughs) I love this question for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is that it's no secret that in sales culture and sales culture, a lack of psychological safety has been impacting people's careers forever. And, you know, there are these sort of traditionalists, right? Those folks that are like, I had to make 150 calls from a phone book and a Rolodex. Those tend to be, those tend to be some of the people who also demonize the need for psychological safety, right? So in sales culture, a lot of the time, an ask for psychological safety is treated as a weakness. It's treated as sometimes an excuse, person is asking for this, that's just because they don't want to make no phone calls. And like anything else, where you're taking the worst case scenario behavior and then applying it to what the whole is probably doing. Um, So something like if someone's talking about, oh, these people, you shouldn't get food stamps or blah, 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 because people cheat the system. When in fact, like the small minority, right, that's like a zero point, whatever, whatever, right, thing that happens, what people do, like just a lot of the time, again, as an impulse, because hidden in there is some, again, some perceived attack on their ideology, there is that impulse to push back. And so I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of the the traditionalist within sales culture. And it is, it's extremely problematic. Without that psychological safety, then some of the issues that we're going to talk about today and even that we've already sort of mentioned, we never even get to those. And it's important. It's important that when we talk about improving culture, that we do it in a way that at the very beginning establishes this commonality between the folks involved. Yes, I'm a Black woman, and Will's a white dude, right? And But we both need psychological safety on the sales floor. Even those traditionalist leaders, right, who are demonizing psychological safety need that. So then it just becomes, you know, a question of how do we get there? And the way that a lot of that's being answered today is things like this, right? So people independently getting together, not waiting uh, for their leadership to sponsor or facilitate a conversation, but just saying, all right, let's jump in. And at the very least, right, maybe we can't convince that traditionalist, right? I was very unsuccessful in car sales of uh, convincing anyone that culture mattered, right? They just kind of made fun of me, which was fine. I was still slinging them whips though. 
But anyway, when we recognize that everyone, when we identify what are those things that everyone emotionally needs, that's when we can start to build trust around those things so that when we get to the meteor topics, meteor, not meteor, uh, when we get to the meteor topics, now we've established again that, that trust to be able to talk about those things. But the psychological safety, you're absolutely right. That part has to come first. Yeah, or you can't have any conversations. How many times have you stood up in the sales floor with an idea and got told you were stupid? Several times, Noah. <laughs> Sit down and shut up. <laughs> Just genuinely, yeah. <laughs> but I know I have. But I've genuinely, many times, that's a stupid idea. I didn't even get to explain my idea. Yeah, but we're not doing that. Or you ask for help. Like I've seen it on a couple teams where they, somebody was brave enough to ask for help and got destroyed on the sales floor and mocked and surprise, surprise, they quit shortly after. But, you know, in those cultures where it's not okay to ask for help, you have to suffer in silence and you're not allowed to have those building conversations. How do you move forward as a team and have, how do you get that growth that everybody wants? How do you go and attract the right people? How do you do good? And I think that's the part that people keep missing is that by avoiding the conversations, we miss so much more and nobody's talking about that. And yeah, psychological safety is the start. And the thing that really caught me off guard, Nikki, is last time we were talking, you said belonging. And I was like, yes, why do we leave? Why do we start our own companies? And I was thinking the first thing that came to my mind is when was the last time you felt appreciated? And I sat there with that for a while. And yeah, I left because I didn't belong. But I wanted to. I wanted to go and have an impact. I wanted to go and help. I wanted to see people grow, but I didn't belong. So I left. I want to make sure you get a word in edgewise here, Will. But, but what you're saying is really important. And I want to make sure we, we double tap on this. So there is a crisis happening right now in the workplace when it comes to belonging. And salespeople and sales organizations and businesses should be paying attention, right? Of course, because it's the right thing to do. But there's an HBR study that let us know that just in lost productivity due to people not feeling a sense of belonging, even if they don't quit, that's costing companies $5,200 per employee per year, right? And there's parts of that that have to do with this buzzy, you know, quiet quitting, right? That's part of what it looks like for a company to lose that, that $5,200. It's actually much more than that if they quit. It's like a something like a year and a half of that person's salary, some percentage of this person's salary to replace once you've lost someone. And then if we're talking about sales, it's that plus however long it takes to ramp someone new and all of these things. So there, it's a real problem but that impacts business to the extent that it makes this an imperative. And while I resent that I have to keep making the economic case for these things, because I want people to think it's the right thing to do, there is a very strong economic case to be made. That was actually something I was thinking about on my, I went on a run this morning and I was thinking about our conversation and I'm thinking about like right now in particular from an economic environment, it is uh, a little bit scary. We got teams that are seeing that they're not growing at the rate that they wanted to, et cetera. And I think about what it means to build and have a diverse team, right? One of the the questions that sort of started this whole thing, right, is the idea of like, I want to hire the the best person, not just hire someone for diversity. Well, if you run into a problem 
And you have a bunch of people who have come from the same background, same experiences, and have the same frame of thought. Even if like there's slight nuance in their personality profiles, they're still just not going to have the same wealth of background to lean on in those moments of like, shit, how do we hit our number? Right? <laughs> this isn't working anymore. How, what do we do differently? Right? It's such an obvious thing to me. And I guess that just comes from like, being very straight by for a long time, went through a massive pivot about two years into building a MarTech product. But I think about when we hire, we bring on individuals, you know, we're a small team now. We've got two sellers, Josh and Dorothy, who are fantastic at what they do. They approach things so differently. They think so differently. And that's one of my favorite things about it is because like we get to learn so much more as an organization as a byproduct of just them having a different way of seeing the exact same thing. It's like David Primer, just to riff on a thing from David Primer of like, if we all study under the same sensei, we're all going to sell or operate the same way. And it's sort of like, so choose your sensei wisely, obviously, but also in the team context, it's not like a diversity in a broad sense can show up in lots of different ways. And back to the psychological safety piece too, is it okay to bring up an alternate approach? I know a lot of managers who say no, like this is the way we sell. You have to do it this way. We've been in those meetings. <laughs> it's interesting to throw some paint at the wall on each of these topics and then see how they're all sort of blending and folding back in on each other. They're all interrelated to the same, the same core issues of behavior and leadership modeling the way and appreciating more beyond ourselves that like, and even Nikki, what you had articulated at the beginning, being a little humble. I mean, I know sellers are kind of famously like, I'm good at what I do. <laughs> and that's great. Like, I love that confidence. And obviously, if you get stuck in gear and you can't shift out of that in meaningful times, it starts to not serve you. It starts to be a detractor. And I think what you all have mentioned, right, the treating diverse hiring and hiring the best as an either or is a, you know, a symptom of this larger sales culture problem, which is, again, with these traditionalists, and maybe not even just them, right? There is a line of thinking that sales is a pure meritocracy. Because the world is not a pure meritocracy, that's impossible. Meaning that the path that each of us take to get to these roles, right? Some of us, that path has a lot more hurdles on it than other folks. And the impact that that has on someone and how they approach the role in how much psychological security they will need and how important it is for them to you know, get a sense of belonging, we cannot underestimate that. We just can't. I mean, and then when you throw in this idea of all of us doing clumsy things and like microaggressing against each other and like stuff like that. Well, you throw that in there, right? Now we've compounded. And so it really, for me, it challenges this idea that sales is a pure meritocracy. Now, sure, that meritocracy exists. And I think that it, it should. It's also on the flip side, right? One of the reasons why I get excited about people from, you know, different backgrounds, historically excluded identities. I get excited about the opportunity for sales to be transformative, to be life-changing, 
right? Based on that meritocracy, because no one can take that from you. But if we don't address the way that identity impacts the way you show up and what your needs are in that place, that too will show up in your outcomes. And that ties into, again, that either or piece, right? So then this is why there is this assumption built into that's why it's so offensive to me. The assumption is failure. The assumption is that if I hire folks, right, from a more diverse set of backgrounds, the risk that they will fail is higher. And so I'm not necessarily choosing between those people and other people. I am choosing between the risk of what to me is unknown, the bias, which to me may still be unconscious. And I'm reaching for what is safe and comfortable for me. And I think we all as human beings can relate to that impulse, but we all know that we have a responsibility to reject that impulse because when we do that, the numbers bear this out, right? McKinsey's been telling us for a decade that when we do that, we are more productive. When we do that, we all make more money. So stopping this assumption that this group will fail. And then my favorite thing, sitting back and asking yourself, I'm a leader. I have uttered this sentence out loud and you don't have to confess it to me, but I'm a leader and I've uttered this sentence out loud that I don't, you know, yes, diversity, but I need productivity instead. Ask yourself, when is the last time that you thought that way when you were hiring a white man, a cis white man? Have you ever had to have someone make the economic case to you for hiring a straight white dude, cis white dude out of college? No, because you believe that that inherent risk that I talked about, however unconsciously, you believe that that inherent risk exists to a much lower degree. These people who look like me and look like the other people on my sales floor are a safer bet when, again, the numbers don't really bear that out, right? When we, when we separate this out into identities, there is a lot of research that talk, particularly in sales, that talks about the success women have relative to their male counterparts. And I've already mentioned the success a company has when they've been able to execute on this. And so I would say, if you are thinking about this or you're hearing me sort of give this scathing indictment of ways that you've thought and things that you've said, please know that where I'm coming from is the, I want to give you the opportunity to stop and reflect on those things and know that it's okay that you had that impulse. Now the responsibility is to reflect and examine that and try and move forward. And uh, Lena had asked, how do you stay positive when there's a sea of traditionalists pushing back? And maybe the bigger question here is inside a culture in which there are a lot of traditionalists in leadership positions, how does somebody who desires, or I mean, we all need psychological safety, so that's unfair to say it's an individual impulse. How do you, as an individual, navigate that culture or maybe you leave? I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of curious to hear everybody's thoughts on that. Yeah, and it's funny you brought that question up because my question was in the exact same line, which is like most people listening in are coming with you know, a level of open-mindedness. And so the question isn't really how does that person become more open-minded? It's the question of how do they respond when faced with somebody who's not as open-minded? What's the right way to approach them? I like this. I have an answer if anyone's interested. Uh, <laughs> the answer, but when I've, because again, 
I'm learning in my allyship journey as much as anyone else. When I think about that, right, how do you, what the next step is, we have to do a couple of things. We have to accept that maybe in this case, those traditionalists are the ones who have the decision-making power. They're going to be the ones maybe who would decide whether or not any efforts you tried to make or initiatives you wanted to get off the ground were well-funded, but they don't dictate culture here. If you're on the sales floor, salespeople tend to be among the most influential people in the building or on the Zoom or at their desks in pajama pants. But, But we do. We tend to have a lot of influence over our organizations. And I just don't know that we've even hit the tip of the iceberg, right? When it comes to our power to foster that kind of culture. So I would say as a step one, if you've identified that there are these traditionalists and that they're pushing back, link arms with other people who believe in this as you do, who understand the imperative And I'm I'm not suggesting that folks from these groups that are historically, again, the object of a lot of um, the uglier elements of this do all the work because that's a problem too. But our collective voices and the diversity of those collective voices, right? I'm talking about it. Morgan's talking about it. Will's talking about it. Nick's talking about it. That matters. In a given environment, we have a choice. We can criticize culture or we can create culture. If I'm on a team and I want us to be successful, if I'm in a company and I want that company to be successful and there's something there, right? There's some something keeping me there, right? Something worth it. I'm getting something that I need. Then it is, it's worth it to try and create that culture and to do it alongside other folks who care about this. And I would say the other thing, right? These traditionalists that you refer to and that I've been referring to, they don't tend to be the ones in HR. They don't, although I've seen it, blows my mind, uh, but they don't, they don't tend to be, you know, those folks who are, you know, not all companies even have like a separate DE&I leader, but find other sponsors at that leadership level who will be able to even more amplify your voice, right? So if you've identified like the CEO doesn't care, what about the CMO? What about this person that she's face head down and, you know, HR stuff and payroll stuff. And then you mentioned to her, like, hey, what about this? I talk to people who are HR professionals and DEI leaders every day and their passion to get things done is high. But you know what? They need internal champions, too. They need someone to link arms with them, too, because they hear you. They know that you want more. They don't know how. But the how is, again, with all of us linking arms, finding who those internal you know, sponsors can be and just refusing to let folks who are resistant to culture advancement be the ones that dictate what happens. Because at the end of the day, we're not here to be centering the fragility. We're not doing that. Because why would we do that when there's a bunch of people over here who are asking for something that makes sense, right? These people are asking for psychological safety, a bunch of us. Why should this one or two people who think that that's, you know, makes you wimpy, why should they be the ones with all of these? We call wimpy. Sometimes it's true. Love that. <laughs> I think part of this too is whether you're talking about the traditionalists or, you know, folks who are pushing for change. I think part of it is like making concrete what the changes are 
and what you want to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's one thing to be told like, Hey, things need to be different. It's another thing to be like, Hey, in this specific scenario, this is what happened objectively. Now here's subjectively how it impacted me and how I felt about it as a next step. Here's what I would like to see, right? Setting up those three key elements in that conversation those are crucial because otherwise nobody knows what to change. Nobody knows what to do. I love that it's basically just internal sales. <laughs> and back to what Nikki was saying, like sellers are probably really well equipped to handle these conversations because we all learn the ways that people are resistant to change and how to overcome and sidestep and rearticulate and and navigate those conversations, even if we're clumsy at it, or even if we have a discovery call that does not go well, and then we learn from it, and on and on. It just happens that it's internal now, which I find, and I love the way, like, folding both of these insights together from you, Will, and Nikki, is that the navigating people who, and I even think higher ed was an interesting experience, but like in my days in higher ed, there were always people who wanted to support what you were doing, but they didn't have the time, energy, or mental space to care about it unless if it was specific. They needed to know what needed to happen and they would make it happen. But if it came even to the phrase, like Nikki, you said, are you criticizing culture or creating it? To riff on that, it was always like, here is the problem and here's the behavior change we're looking for. Here's the resources that we need. Here are the things that we're trying to accomplish. That empowers these sponsors to make a decision. But again, you're basically just selling them on this change, which I love. I don't want to miss something really important related to this because it feels like a chicken in the egg. And I feel like this could be a good way to sort of tie a few things together, which is hiring practices. And because, to me at least, it seems there is a tension between creating a culture in which there is psychological safety with a lot of diverse voices and belonging and sort of hiring in people who can either be trained or trained or have a bunch of additional experience in this topic. And sort of this, it's not really a balancing act, but it feels what I've seen is companies do this wrong, where they will hire in a lot of people from different backgrounds, with different ideologies, with different points of view on how to do things. And then a huge chunk of them leave because they didn't have the basics. So how can companies both create this and hire in ways that bring in new sorts of perspectives and voices or, or like people from different backgrounds. I really do. I, I love that this all kind of ties back to what we originally started talking about, right? Which is that that like of, lack of psychological safety and that lack of belonging is ultimately why these people are leaving. Now, whether that lack of belonging is tied to their specific identity, right? As a person from a group that's been historically Uh, economically excluded, right? Of course, those things are going to be different, but because we have identified that there are these things that people need, that if they don't get, they leave, and if they leave, costs money, I think that's a place to start. And so to Will's point around specificity, what I've seen work, right, and, and how that internal selling shows up, it's just the same way it shows up. Like if 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 you and I are on a demo, Will, and you are pitching me lavender, you're going to ask me questions first. And that curiosity 
is intended to have me think about what I'm doing first before you have prescribed something for me, before you have, or instead of, right? Because I don't think you would do this. Instead of trashing what I'm doing now, like, ew, these emails you're sending are gross. You need to love them right now. That <laughs> makes a, a LinkedIn post like lavender strat. No, I would never say that lavender. No, seriously, they're great. So there is that piece of getting curious first, and there is that what that looks like. Let's say, and then when it comes to hiring, is like you just mentioned, Morgan. So we see this mass exodus of folks who didn't have a sense of belonging. If I'm on a sales floor, and I see that the last few people that were hired here fit this same profile that is this white straight male and the last and or the last people who few people who left here were black women or people who were you know in the lgbtqia plus community that's the question you ask and you ask it as much curiosity as you can muster and you're talking to either your sales leader but more uh, probably more impactfully that hr person or chief people officer Right. So like it's important to me that we you know, have a culture of belonging here. It's one of the reasons that I came here right in the interview. We talked about how important culture was. And I noticed that the last few people that left here have been people of color. What do you think about that? So we're not insulting. We're not accusing. We're pointing out the problem and then asking them what they think. We're causing them to think about all the reasons why? And then, of course, we can start to ask other questions that would lead them down a path. But the starting point is to plant that seed, right? And again, said differently, right? I noticed, right, you asked all of us to go and refer our friends to come work here. And then when that happened, the next few folks we had in, like they just graduated from college, they're white, they're straight, they're dudes. What do you think about that? Uh, so, so asking that kind of question is important. And, and here's a last little point as to why and how it's effective. When I come into an organization as a sales leader, that internal selling looks a little bit like I've, I've taken a look at the tech stack and I've identified that there is this piece of they need lavender, right? I've identified that they need lavender. But when I go to talk to the person who would sign off on that, they're telling me. We've done just fine without lavender. The last time we got a tool, nobody used it. It didn't make a difference. But if I know my team need lavender, then it's my responsibility to continue to make that case. And the extent to which I make that case effectively, right, is the extent to which, you know, the way we send emails today is completely revolutionized. And so... If I'm willing, I want that to happen. I have to get curious and I have to do some internal selling. I love this has turned into a lavender pitch hour. I'm I'm so into it. <laughs> it's such a good analogy. It's such a good analogy, though. I love it. Will? My thoughts on this starts with hiring and being as rigid as possible with process without sacrificing the end result. I'm a huge, huge fan of Amy Volos's scorecards huge fan. And the reason for it is because I, as a human being, am horribly biased. And like somebody shoots me like a casual DM. I'm just like, oh, I like this person. And then like, I immediately started thinking to myself, I'm showing favoritism within the like hiring process. And so I go back to the scorecard. It keeps me honest, right? That's such a crucial tool within process. 
And if you as a leader are not looking back at the outcomes of what ends up on the other side of that process, you're not really doing your job, which is, you know, you've got like this process, you're looking at the outcomes and you're like, okay, I seem to be doing a very particular thing on the outcome. Like if this is important, then that should not be the result. What's going on in between? I think the other piece, and Nikki, you and I talked about this a bit, was like the notion of, okay, we hire and we have a team that is more diverse now. I I think the classic is like, I'm from Atlanta and every company on the planet that says we're moving to Atlanta says we're doing it for diversity reasons. She's like, cool, whatever. So like, that's their public (laughs) statement. But then you see like a couple months later, it's not actually what's in the follow-up. It's not actually what happens. Yeah. As a leader, I'm always, it's just one of those things that's like continuously made me curious as to like why that's happening. I think part of it is just like good management practice, right? And, you know, actually showing people the ropes, giving people feedback, creating psychological safety to bring it back to the full circle moment, right? But Nikki, I'm, I'm curious how you think about this because we've had back and forth on Twitter about like, where the U.S. population sits and like how that breaks out. Um, so it's not that like people don't need to come to Atlanta. I'm not like against that. It's I'm more just, like gentle. no. <laughs> okay. Assuming they've got the hiring down, they're doing these things right. Like where where is the training failing? Where is the where are we failing in that initial starting point to keep people? I think, and again, this is in. Uh, already existing issue in sales culture, which is that when people go into leadership, they don't tend to get any leadership training, any formal leadership training, which means they certainly haven't gotten any training in how to be an inclusive leader. So the simple answer to that is like, let's do that, right? And part of that training will would likely include this little nugget that you talked about, which is that, yes, it's something like what, 70% of the you know black workforce does exist in just a few southern states that information alone whether i'm opening an office in atlanta or not it can impact things i might be asking myself in hiring like do i want to offer this role remotely it's an easy yes if your company is in san francisco and you know that that talent is probably not just going to fall into your lap right Now you can start to look at, all right, how do I get in front of these folks at least as much as I'm getting in front of these other folks, you know, so that I can, in a genuine and organic and data-based way, start to open that up. So it's, it's, yes, it's that, that asking yourself questions, that little bit of sort of self-examination and making yourself aware and yourself in this case, as we were talking about before, needs to be at the very least that team lead SDR that you promoted into SDR leadership. I believe in this so deeply because that SDR position is the gateway into a sales career. How we socialize people into this profession matters. When I talk about traditionalists, I'm just talking about people who are acting according to the way that they were socialized into this profession. And it included a lack of psychological safety. It included, right, treating a need for belonging as wimpy. But again, we don't have to do that. So if we 
arm these mid-level managers, the folks who are welcoming people into the organization and teaching them, right? Here's what we're about. Because you're not just teaching, if this is their first sales job, especially, you're not just teaching them about that job. You're teaching them about what a sales career looks like, what sales culture looks like. You know, I was lucky in that way. My first B2B tech sales job was startup in Austin called Outbound Engine. At the time, Scott Lease was the SVP of sales there. And he's the one that hired me. It was a really fun interview. I'll tell you about another time. But anyway, it was the it is still the most diverse sales floor that I ever worked on. There was psychological safety. There was an emphasis on belonging. And so I thought that's how the whole thing was. And whatever I experienced later, I feel lucky to have had that experience because now I know what it can look like. And I didn't have this experience that turned me off and made me feel like if I don't belong at this company on this sales floor, I probably don't belong in this profession. So that's, I'm here today to get that message across to leaders of leaders about what it looks like to empower folks, right? And to teach them the importance of inclusive leadership and that psychological safety and belonging are at the very heart of that. Hell yes. (laughs) 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 Yes. (laughs) Well, I love this moment because usually, you know, Nick and I have hosted enough live shows. So I know his look when he has something to say. So I just looked at Nick and he's just basking in it. He's just savoring the moment. Yeah, it was I, <laughs> What is there to say? It was like, go Nikki. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and like even just talking about like the belonging and then even looking at like the hiring practices and like job descriptions, even that. I think more people like the, I'm really liking the movement of breaking into tech and people humbling the descriptions to be a little bit more realistic because I'm sorry. I'm sorry if this is the first you've heard it, but selling tech isn't special. Selling is selling. So sorry if I was the first person to break that to you, but, and I really appreciate Nikki, you're talking about like, yeah, if you don't know what good looks like, if you don't know what a safe culture feels like, you don't know what it's like to have your voice heard. That's you're never going to seek that out because you've never had it. And I think as managers, as leaders, as us having voices, it is our responsibility to make sure we know that. And guys, if you haven't already seen Bilal's post from today. So good. Oh, my gosh. But little things like do what you say. Don't change comp plans midway through and then screw somebody out of feeding their family. Or there's little things that we can do that show that we care. And there's also ways to be profitable without having to go and harm the people that are doing the work. And if they feel like they belong, they will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that everybody succeeds. But if you don't take care of them, what do you do? All right. I have one last closing question, whoever, but probably for Nikki, just kind of circumstantially, (laughs) is somebody listens to this and they say, great, I'm inspired, I'm interested I get what you're talking about. I'm looking for behavior change, but I want more. I want the the hows. I want the what's. Where should they go? Inclusive.co. I am the chief revenue officer at a company called Inclusive, and we build inclusion and belonging through shared dialogue. When you go to inclusive.co, you'll see a lot of resources that are downloadable. So things like, you know, how to talk to your boss about race beginner's guide to belonging. So we've, we have, we've thought about this. And as I mentioned earlier, 
we've seen this happen with our customers. One of our most successful customers, a company called Showpad. And, you know, this was something that was really important to them when they, they were already pretty far along when they first started having these conversations, these inclusive conversations, they were already at about 80% of folks at the company uh, reporting that they felt like a sense of belonging, which is like astronomical actually. But then after they, the only thing they changed was to implement these conversations, these opportunities for peers to tell their stories and hear from each other. And within six months, they're now at, they were at 90% belonging, right? People reporting that they feel a sense of belonging. So inclusive helps you get that information, right? It helps you have something that is quantifiable in terms of, are these conversations working or are we just all making ourselves feel better? Are we just out here snowflaking together? So, <laughs> so you go there and, and you'll find the information. Otherwise, what I would love for you to do, because we are actually focusing on a conversation that we've crafted around belonging, uh, reach out to me individually and I can you know talk to you about what the structure of those conversations look like and what it would take for us to be able to help you make those conversations a part of what you're already doing uh, to build culture. Love, love, love. Nick, you want to close this out as usual? Absolutely. It is 2022, guys. Nobody should have to suffer in silence. If you need help, if you feel like you're struggling, you don't need to buy anything. Just get in our DMs. Shoot us a message. Ask for help. It's 2022. Even though we're working remote, we're not alone. So thank you, everyone that has joined us today. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Will. It means a lot to have you guys here. And we can't wait to see everyone again soon. Thank you. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.